0: May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. For this summer, we are working through the book of Romans, and our reading from chapter four addresses two questions. Who receives the promises of God, and on what basis are they attained? Let me say that again. Who receives God's promises and on what basis? Paul answers both of these questions in verse 16. I want to encourage you to look at it with me. The promise is guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only those who are of the law, but also those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. So, who receives God's promises? It's not a trick question. Abraham's offspring. And on what basis are they attained? Lineage, our connection to Abraham, being counted among his offspring. Now, what I want to do for the next 10 to 12 minutes, is explore the meaning of those two ideas, the who and the how. And what I hope that, well, what I hope to help you see is how Abraham fundamentally reworks how God was thought to work in the world in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, I'm just going to tell you right now, What I'm going to say may not be immediately practical or actionable. But what I really want to do is to give you a little bit of confidence as a reader of Scripture. So that as you read the book of Romans, you might have a better sense of what Paul is saying. So the promise, who receives God's promises, and on what basis. So let's start this little Bible study, as it were, with Abraham, the historical figure. Paul presumes familiarity with his story, a familiarity that we may not have, but don't worry, I'm here to bring you up to speed. (laughs) The story of Abraham starts in the book of Genesis, chapter 12. This is at the very, very, very beginning of the biblical story. And God comes to Abraham as he's standing somewhere in the desert, and he says, Abraham, he makes him a promise One day, your children, actually not your children, your children's children and their children and their children, from you, God says, I am going to build this great people, this great nation. And through that nation, God says, I am going to do something that will change the future of humankind. And your people, Abraham, are so central to what I am going to do in the world that your destiny, to quote verse 13, is to be the heir of the world. The people of Abraham, God promises, will inherit the earth. That was the promise. And it was made to a very specific family. Abraham and his Descendants. So how could you become part of that trajectory of promise? Well, the answer was simple. You had to trace your ancestry back to Abraham. In the language that we use today, to be a child of promise was tied to ethnicity, your people group. That was the foundation. But that wasn't the only foundation. You had to be born into the family, but you also had to act like you were part of the family. And the way that you acted like you were part of the family was by observing the law that God gave to Abraham's descendants. And I think you know what I'm talking about. Just think of Moses and all of the laws about purity and dietary restrictions and circumcising your children. You were born into this family that received these wonderful promises. And then you showed yourself to be part of that family by observing the law. The law was how the people of Israel distinguished themselves amongst all the other peoples of the earth. So for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, Abraham's children and their children and their children and their children kept hoping and longing and praying and obeying God in the hopes that one day God would fulfill all of his promises To Abraham and they would become again the heirs of the world that they would inherit the earth that is the old testament background to this text are you guys still with me okay I realize this is maybe a little boring but I promise it will get more interesting now here's the here's the very important question how does Jesus Christ fit into that story that I just told and related question how do non-jews are gentiles people not ethnically tied to abraham what happens when they start to believe that jesus christ is in some way the answer to this riddle of the promise made to abraham what happens when they start to believe that it is in jesus christ that all god's promises are fulfilled this was the theological crisis of the first century How do non-Jews become part of the family of promise? How can they be counted as Abraham's offspring? And specifically, how do they relate to the law? This very particular manner of life that God prescribed for Abraham's offspring. And there is an entire book of the New Testament dedicated to answering those questions. It is called the Book of Romans. Now the debate, this is going to sound funny, but the debate was not really about Jesus. The people that Paul was disagreeing with that we see reflected in his letters all agreed that Jesus was now the central figure in this story. The real debate was about the continued significance of the law. Do non-Jewish people, once they start to believe in Christ and think of themselves as children of Abraham, do they have to adopt those Jewish traditions to become part of the people of promise? To speak kind of sociologically, what type of assimilating pressures are appropriate for all of these non-Jews who are now kind of thinking and worshiping in this Jewish way. And most of the leaders of the church in the decades immediately following Jesus' resurrection said, yes, the Gentiles do have to keep the law. They They have to not just believe in the God of Abraham, they have to act and adopt the manner of life that has been characteristic of the children of Abraham from the beginning. Yes, the door is open to all people. Do you remember uh, a few weeks ago, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost? Parthians and Medes and Cretans and Arabians, they are all welcome now to become part of Abraham's family. But they have to do the stuff that Abraham's descendants have always done. Circumcise your male children, follow the dietary restrictions, adopt those purity laws. And this is important. Not because that was how you earned your way into heaven right nobody thought that but the notion or the logic was something like this god gave to the to the human race this undescribable gift in his son jesus christ he opened the door into the blessing of the promise but but god does not give his gifts indiscriminately and so if you are going to be a recipient of god's gifts you have to prove that you are worthy of them And the way that you prove that you are worthy of the wonderful gift that God gave us in Jesus Christ is by following the law. Again, this was the majority opinion in the decades immediately following the birth of Jesus. But there was one, there was one ethnic descendant of Abraham, Saul of Tarsus, who said, not so fast. That cannot be how it works. You know, it's fine for those of us who grew up with these traditions to continue to practice them. But Jesus Christ did not just expand the boundaries of Abraham's descendants. Jesus completely redefined what it means to be part of Abraham's family. And as it concerns the promises made to Abraham, there is no longer an ethnic frontier that keeps some people groups out. What Paul says is that there is no longer this wall between Jew and Gentile. And there's no longer a wall between slave and free, or rich or poor, or even male and female. All of the ways that the cultures of the peoples of the earth assign and distribute worth, all of those hierarchies, And and what's a good phrase? Uh, Systems of, of cultural capital. Gosh, that was terrible. All of different ways the peoples of the world assign and distribute worth. All of that has been relativized in light of what Jesus Christ has done. The only thing, Paul says, the only thing that matters now, it's not where you were born, it's not who you were born to, it's not where you sit on different hierarchies of status, the only thing that matters is how you relate to Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus Christ, God has done something that completely sidesteps questions of merit or worth. The way Paul puts it is God in Jesus Christ justifies the ungodly. He takes the undeserving, the unrighteous, and sets them right with God and completely sidesteps questions of worth. Okay, and from now on, the way that we become children of promise and the only characteristic that marks us as children of promise is faith. It's our trust in what God has done for Jesus Christ. There's no other mechanism by which we prove ourselves worthy or deserving of the promises of God. Now that is, I think, the kind of biblical theology happening in our text. How do you receive the promises of God? On what basis are the promises of God attained? Faith, trust in God. That's the doorway into the life of promise. Now, what about it? What what does it look or are Feel like to live a life based on faith, not observance of the law? I think Paul addresses that question too, and based on your eyes, this is gonna be a little bit more practical and hopefully helpful. <laughs> okay, I have two things I wanna say about faith, and I'll be done. First, the life of faith, our doorway into the life of promise. It is something that you think through. The way it's portrayed here, faith is something that you think through. It is reasonable, and it involves your mind. It's more than your mind, but it is not less than your mind. What do I mean by that? What I'm trying to say here is that the way that the Bible, and specifically this chapter, portrays faith, is not a blind leap into the abyss hoping that you'll find a rope somewhere out there to keep you from plunging. The life of faith as it is portrayed in the Bible is it's trusting someone who has proved themselves trustworthy. It is not irrational, right, to trust or depend on something or someone who has proved themselves to be true. You find what I'm saying? Like it is not irrational to assume that we will begin our worship six minutes after the stated time because that is what we do every single week it is not irrational to assume that or to live as if that's true because that is indeed what is always true in the same way god says all right paul says through the life of abraham abraham believed in god and trusted god because god proved himself Faithful. Actually, two things. God proved himself powerful that he is able to keep his promises and proved himself dependable that he is willing to keep his promises. And both things are important, right? The willingness to be faithful is not particularly helpful if you do not have the power or the ability to be faithful. And Paul says, through the life of Abraham, God has proved both. First, uh, power. We see that in verse 17, the God in whom we place our trust gives life to the dead and calls into being the things that are not. Creation out of nothing and new creation or resurrection from the dead, these are the premier manifestations of God's power. And our faith in God will undoubtedly be tested. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. But to start with the good news, God does not ask us to believe that he will do something for us that he has not already done before. And the testimony of the Bible and kind of what we just sang, the witness of the lives of saints throughout the centuries, is that the more that you You know, consider and think through the inbreaking of God, the manifestations of God's power, God's history of making a way where there is no way. The more that you reckon with that, the more that you can believe that that will be true for you. That's what happened to Abraham. Look, in verse 21, it says, he was persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. That's an an interesting verb, persuaded, not emotionally overpowered. He was persuaded. He considered who God is and what God's power has done before. And he says, it is reasonable for me to depend on God for me. So here's the application. If you feel like your faith is, is ineffectual, or if you feel like your faith is weakening, or if you feel like your faith is not making any emotional difference in your life my question to you let's just hypothetically someone walks in i don't have an office someone walks into my office and says my faith is weak i feel it being what's the verb innerviated is that right whatever um what do i do Um, my first question to them would be like what are you putting your mind to and how regularly are you reading scripture How regularly are you singing God's praises? How regularly are you receiving Holy Communion? Of course, if you're not doing any of those things, if your mind is not set on the truth, well, of course your faith is weak. Like, what did you think was going to happen? You have to think through this stuff. The life of faith is something that you think through. It's not, it's more than that, but it is not less than that. Okay, and that kind of, well, let me put it this way, and this will lead to my next point. The experience of doubt is universal. Everybody doubts. Nobody doesn't doubt. <laughs> the question is, what do you do with your doubts? And in your doubts, do you feed your mind with truth? I'm gonna put it this way. This might, I might wanna, don't uh, overinterpret this. Doubt is universal, unbelief is a choice. And if you choose, to not combat your doubt by feeding your mind with truth, then it will undoubtedly metastasize into unbelief. Okay, that's my second point: is faith is something that you think through. Second point, faith is something you have to fight for. And just because our confidence in God, our faith in God rests on manifestations of God's power and God's faithfulness, that does not mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean it's not going to be tested. And that's what we see in the life of Abraham. You remember way back at the beginning of the sermon when I talked about those promises that God made to Abraham, that from him, like from his literal, uh, from his descendants, would constitute this great nation? Well, when God made that promise to Abraham, Abraham and his wife Sarah were childless. And it was not as if God gave that promise to Abraham and then Sarah was pregnant the next day. There were decades in between God's promise and the fulfillment of it. In fact, at one point, multiple decades after God first made the promise to Abraham, God reiterated the promise to Abraham, and Abraham laughed. He's like, are you kidding me? I've given up on that a long time ago. And some of you know the, the actual acute pain of childlessness. When the days become weeks, and the weeks become months, and the months become years, and the years become decades, and you think to yourself, this is just, this just not going to happen. That was Abraham's experience. And what does our passage say about Abraham's crucible of faith? Against all hope, he believed in hope. He had every reason from a strictly natural frame of reference to give up on the dream of having children and seeing the fulfillment of God's promise. But he did not. And this is really important. What Abraham was able to do was hold two things in generative tension. On the one hand, he did not deny the reality of his situation. What does the Bible say? He faced the fact, right? He did not put his head into the sand or act like what was right in front of him did not exist. He faced the fact of his old age and Sarah's barrenness. But on the other hand, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise. He was able to hold intention, the reality of his situation and the veracity of the promise of God. He had doubts. We know he had doubts. But his doubts did not become unbelief. He avoided that deep-seated attitude of distrust and suspicion. So he did not waver, and he was made strong. The final thing I want to say here about this, this strengthening of faith is, is this, is that it works counterintuitively. And here's what I mean by that. Some of you guys lift weights, or some of you girls lift weights, excuse me. Uh, I do not lift weights, as you might expect. But I, I, do, uh, I do ride bikes. And the other day, Tuesday, I went on my first gr- group bicycle ride in a long time because of the pandemic. And if you, it's same thing with weights, if you push yourself, to the uttermost limits, it does not feel like you're getting stronger. In fact, it feels like you're getting weaker. And I think uh, biologically, that is indeed what is happening. Your muscles are breaking down. So when you are pushing yourself to the uttermost, it does not feel like you're getting stronger. It feels like you are getting weaker because your muscles are literally breaking down. And I wanna say, in the life of faith, it works something like that. When God is strengthening, a little corny, but our spiritual muscles, Oftentimes, what is happening is that we are, fe- it feels like we are getting broken down. Like every ground of certainty that we once had is, is crumbling. But what I want to promise you is that in those testing, those moments of testing, if you keep feeding your mind with truth, if you keep doing the right thing day after day after day, God will use the weakening of your faith experientially <laughs> to make you strong. To give you poise and confidence and assurance. That is what happened to Abraham. He did not waver through unbelief despite his doubts, his explicable doubts in the truth of God's promise. And the same will be true for you. Okay, this was kind of a dense sermon. (laughs) Do not accuse me of trying to do too little. (coughs) Jesus Christ redefines what it means to be part of the people of God, to be a child of promise. And the mark of being a child of promise is faith, not observance of the law, not proving your worth through fidelity to God's commands. It's simply faith. That's what makes you a child of God. And the life of faith is something you have to think through. It involves your mind. You have real choices to make as to, what, as to the vibrancy of your faith. But it's also something that you fight for. And doubts are very real, and they are inevitable. But you can, in the grace of God, labor to overcome them and become strengthened in your faith so that you do not waver through unbelief. Our gracious God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the book of Romans. We thank you, God, that you have opened the door to all people. How many of us here are ethnic Jews? We are all people. The fulfillment of your promise that the door into the kingdom of God is open to all nations. And we thank you, Lord, that you have disregarded different systems of worth or of value. That you call us beloved and children of promise because we believe that you love us and that you are for us and you don't ask us to prove ourselves worthy of that gift. Lord, I pray for all of us here that we could live a life of faith, a vibrant, rock-solid faith, and grace us to think through things to reason in light of your scripture, to think Christianly about the world and about our lives, and give us the energy to to fight for the life of faith so that we would indeed not waver through unbelief. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, speaking about faith of something you think through, let's stand and let's confess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed.